I'm joined today by Tony Clark, and Tony is the MD of Kendall Bell Nate. Prior to that, he was the MD of John Dickinson Stationery. Tony, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you for having me. Tony, I'm guessing by your accent that you're originally from Tub Dublin. Can you tell me a little bit about where you grew up? I had a dank grow up. Like. I can indeed. I grew up in Rathfarnham. Um, working class family. Dad was a labourer. Mother was a house a housewife. I've a uh, brother, two sisters. So grew up at uh, a, a very, very, I suppose, a good time in Ireland because there was a lot of change happening in Ireland at the time. Um, uh, had a very happy childhood. Um, very lucky because my my mother and father, despite the fact that they had limited education themselves, they believed in education, and mm. they really, really worked hard to put my myself and my brothers and sisters, my brother and sisters, through secondary education, my brother through third level education, um, at a time when it wasn't easy, it was definitely not easy. A very different time in Ireland. Um, uh, a lot of your 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 listeners probably wouldn't realise that free education for free secondary education only came into Ireland in 1967. Um, I went to secondary school, uh, Dallas Al Brothers in, in Churchtown in 1968 started there. So I was one of the first batch through this free secondary education system. Um, and I suppose it was very, very beneficial at that time, you know, prior to free edu secondary education coming in, probably a third or uh, more of children left school at 12. They finished school and that was it. They went out working or they went and did uh, an apprenticeship maybe for four or five years. Um, and some of them obviously were very, very successful, but the education system certainly wasn't geared towards uh, educating everybody at the time. And we often boast in Ireland about our well-educated uh, workforce and rightly so. And that stems from 1967. So I grew up with a, a, you know, I grew up in a very, very normal working class family. I, my father and mother had a very hard, good work ethic, and that was instilled in, in, the, in the four of us. And it carried on through our life. We instill it in our children now. And um, I, I have to say it was a very enjoyable childhood. I was going to ask you, what motivate you, motivated you to set up Kendall Bell? Kendall Bell? Well, I had a great motivation. I had been... <laughs> I'd been running uh, John Dixon's stationery in Ireland and, and a small company in the UK, uh, John Dixon's Ledbury, um, for 13 years. I was managing director of the business. I was in a great position, earning good money, um, very entrepreneurial. We were introducing new ideas and it was suddenly sold. Overnight, it was sold to a French company. And um, they decided that they were going to relocate. This is back in 2006. Um, in 2006, they decided they were going to relocate to Eastern Europe, which wasn't an option, obviously, for me. And uh, I became redundant at the age of 50. But, you know, I thought I have great experience. I'm managing director of a business for 13 years. I've been on the board of Guaranteed Irish for 13 years. I have, you know, run companies in the UK and Ireland. And um, I started looking for a new job. Crossed my mind maybe to start working for myself and that, but I'd always had the comfort of having a nice salary, nice company car, didn't have to worry where the wages were coming from in the business for the, the for the next week or whatever. And um, I remember going doing outplacement with a company in Dublin, Sydney Saunders O'Shea, and the, I said, yeah, you'll get a job, yeah. I think about 18 months or two years for you to get to that because the pyramid at the top obviously is 
is narrower. And I said, what am I going to do for two years? So I started to look at the opportunities of self-employment. And um, I uh, looked at three or four different items. I mean, obviously, I'd worked in the envelope manufacturing industry for for 13 years. It was, and I loved it. Um, but it was a dying industry. It was coming to the end of its life cycle, you know. Uh, Aircom, ESB, Bank of Ireland were no longer sending out as many paper statements and paper communications as they had. So it was a dying industry. So that was not a runner for me. And I looked at a couple of other, uh, you know, industries. I thought maybe, I was, I, I'm, as, you, as you know, I, I love my golf. Um, I thought maybe I'll do something in the golf world, you know. And um, I, I actually worked to the stage where I was very, very close to signing a deal to, to take on retail stores in Ireland. Had a partner who was willing to invest. Was in um, Oklahoma to sign the deal and got a good feeling that there's something just not right, whatever it is. Can't explain it, but just something. Don't sign this for the moment. And I backed off. And thank God I did. It, was, it would have been the wrong decision. It would have been a very bad decision. So I came back to Ireland. I said, what am I going to do? And a friend of mine, a networking colleague of mine, introduced me to Kendallbell, a master franchiser in Kendallbell. And I looked at him and I said to myself, yeah, this is the kind of work that I could do. It's very, very much service orientated, all about delivering customer service, delivering other clients' customer services, you know, as well as your own. So this is something that would fall right into my lap. And the model was a slightly, uh, I suppose the, the franchise model was slightly different from other franchises in that it was non-territorial. So I could deal anywhere at all. Um, it also, you know, it had the best of technology from, again, going back to my interest in technology, the best of phone systems, the best of phone platforms, the best of uh, software for delivering the, the, the service that we needed to deliver. So I looked at it, took some time looking at it, and decided, yeah, this is something that I could adapt and I could work with. And, I mean, you know, the, the model was for a three- or four-person business. I thought I could make it bigger than that. Um, you know, it, it tended to, that the, the existing model at that time, back in 2007, tended to target Soho businesses, which not a problem whatsoever. But I thought that the model could be turned around to actually, you know, to deliver service to medium-sized businesses and even to multinationals, you know, with the right people and, you know, the technology was there, just getting the right people into place would help us to deliver that. And thank God it's worked out that way. It, it worked very well like that. For, for people not familiar with Kendall Bell, Tony, maybe you could just give a, a very quick uh, overview of, of, of the service and yep. who might benefit from it. Well, as I said earlier, Paul, basically what we do is deliver people's customer service for them. We answer phones, so we answer their phone calls. We provide a call answering service. We provide a virtual reception service. We provide service desk solutions, help desk solutions. And we basically encompass it all. Um, we, we deliver their email service. We do some, some social media monitoring for people. We do live chat for them. And they outsource that to us. So they treat us as a trusted partner and they outsource that, that end of their business to us. And they then can concentrate on the revenue generating things in, within their business, the activities within their business that generate their income. And that's basically it in a nutshell. We deliver your customer service. Okay. I want to go back to 2006, Tony, because you may, something you said kind of struck me. Here you are as 50. You, you, you're you're in, a, in, in, in the right-hand lane. Everything was going well. 
and all of a sudden world gets shut down you talk about it like it was a smooth process you went from there and you talked to people and then you ended up in Kendallbell but it can't have been like that at an emotional level maybe and, and I'm asking you this because there's other people out there who maybe tomorrow are going to find themselves in the exact same situation <laughs> so I'd like you to talk about what it felt like and how you how you managed your 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 mindset and how you managed to stay positive through that process. Okay. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it, it didn't really come as a shock to me, Paul, in one way, okay? Because, as I said, I was running a business in the UK. Um, in 2004, I had a fantastic chief executive, an Irish man, Richard Evans. And myself and Richard had a fantastic relationship. And we I learned so much over from him over the 13 years. It was just unreal. But I had a fantastic relationship with him. And he, he actually... I had sold down the capitalist vice of manufacturing in Ireland. Manufacturing was becoming so difficult. Traditional manufacturing in Ireland was becoming so difficult. We had closed down the, the manufacturing in Ireland and unfortunately lost 70 jobs. But we kept the marketing and uh, a distribution um, centre in Dublin. And at that stage, I was getting a little bit itchy feet. But he asked me, would I move to the UK? And I decided, uh, no, I'm not prepared to move to the UK. After discussions with my family and other bits and pieces, I decided, no, I'm not going to move to the UK. But they asked me then to do three days in the UK and two days in Ireland or vice versa, you know, alternate weeks. So I decided, yeah, I, I'll do this again. After much discussion with my wife and children, I decided, yeah, th this is what I'll do. I'll give it a go. Um, I agreed with them that I would do it for two years. And as I said, then towards the end of 2006, the company was being sold. So it, it very much fell into place. So I knew that I had a bit of time to prepare for my exit from the business. And in fairness to him, he, he negotiated, negotiated a very good exit package for me. He really did look after me very, very well. So then it was, it was a little bit difficult. It was a shock to the system when I realized, I mean, I'm not trying to be smart about it. But I'm sitting there and I'm saying, I have so much experience. I've got to be attractive to somebody, you know. Um, I've got to, you know, I can bring a lot to the table. I've been sitting at the you know, the board and uh, the board meetings in John Dickinson stationery. I've been running the business. I've turned around two businesses to profit. So I've got to be attractive. But of course, it was in traditional manufacturing. So there was a lot of change again going on. So it was a little bit of a shock um, to learn that it might take me two years to get a job. I, I still had to feed my children, still had to, 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 to pay them more. Well, I didn't have to pay the mortgage. Actually, I cleared all my mortgage and all at that stage. I was in a nice financial position. Um, I was saying earlier, I was a, di a director of um, on the board and a director of Guaranteed Irish for 13 years. Um, I uh, had worked with some good people in there, some very, very good people. And Guaranteed Irish, obviously, uh, was the, the business of promoting Irish-made products. Um, and, you know, they're very, very successful, have gone from strength to strength over the last number of years. And it's a great concept. Buy Irish where you can. You know, don't buy European, don't buy American, buy Irish where you can. So... I, for the first six months, I was on six months gardening leave and the first two weeks were fantastic. Played golf every second day, was up, doing all the bits and pieces. Then after two weeks, I said to myself, Jesus, this is getting a little bit boring, you know, what am I going to do? And very luckily, I got involved, I got more involved in, um, in um, the Guaranteed Irish end of it and the day-to-day -day bits and pieces. Did a couple of projects that they asked me to get involved in on a voluntary basis, by the way. And um, I did that. And that, I did that for about six months, and then 
I did a lot of uh, work in the in in the golf club, which kept me occupied. You know, the the running of the golf club. I was captain in the golf club at the time, and and that got me involved in you know the day to day running of the business. Um, so that kept me going. But it was a very difficult time, and I can remember at really? the, you know at at times saying um, to to my wife, you know, I'm gonna have to to, to find something to do. And maybe I lower my expectations a little bit. You know, I was looking for managing director positions. Maybe I have to lower my expectations a little bit. Maybe I have to to make a change in, in you know a total seed change. Maybe I need to go back and get a little bit more education or whatever. Anyway, I mean it was a, it wasn't an easy time. Luckily enough, from a financial perspective, we didn't have an issue. So you know it was a little bit tighter and a little bit tougher. Obviously, when he, one of your salaries disappears, my wife was was. Uh, was working with the SAP at the time, so she had a very, very good job. Was able to support me when I needed. But it was the only time in my life where I actually had to to actually sign on to the door. You know, it was, that was just soul destroying. I mean, to, at the time you had to go down and sit in the, in the doll office, and I'd never been in a doll office or a social welfare office in my life. And suddenly I'm signing on, and and um, it, it, it's it's a totally different experience. But you know. We we talked about it. We discussed it, um, and we were very, very, you know, we were very very pragmatic about what we did and what we didn't do. And when the Kendall Bell opportunity came up, um, I suppose I I researched it really well. My experience of working at managing director level in a very large PLC, albeit two small businesses and a, a PLC, gave me a broad knowledge of business, a really broad knowledge of business, how to value businesses, how to look at. You know how to project, pre- uh, prepare plans and budgets and that. And I remember when I presented, uh, when I prepared the um, the business plan for Candlebell Nace, um, you know, bringing it to the banks, and they were delighted with the, the format of it. They liked the content of it, but they were delighted with the format of it. And I remember one of the people, I, one of the people I knew in, in Bank of Ireland, saying, you know, a lot of people come in here and they have their business plan kind of on a, a uh, back of a cigarette packet. So what you've done is very, very good. And they approved different bits and pieces for me. So that made it. So that experience certainly paid. But mm. I said earlier, at that time, we were sitting very, very comfortably. I I was very lucky because Valerie, my wife, always had the belief that, you know, when I did something, I did it correctly and I did it right. And uh, she gave me 100% backing when I set up Candle Bell. And it was a tough, the first two years were tough. It was very, mm. very tough. Um, was not easy. But sometimes yeah. you've got to take that calculated risk. You know, you've got to, you, you do all your sums, you take the risk, you do your plans, you plan it effectively, you look yeah. at your what if analysis and do all the, the, the different types of analysis that you, you want to do and then go for it. But uh, you, you said the first two years were tough, Tony. Mm-hmm. Talk to me what made them tough. Yeah. <clears throat> that went out the wrong way. <clears throat> You'll have You're to kidding. edit that out. Um, what made them tough? Um, well, I suppose 2008 was the financial crash. I opened in October 2007. The financial crash was just about to happen. In February 2008, I was sitting in my office one Friday afternoon, pain in the gut, and uh, caught something I'd eaten or whatever. That night I was taken in for emergency surgery for uh, appendix at 50 Oof. years of age. I was, the, I was the second oldest person that the, the surgeon ever operated on for appendix, you know. So that knocked me back a, li- a little bit for, for six. But 
look, I'd, I'd overcome adversary, you know, different things in my life, different problems that had occurred for me uh, over the years. So, you know, you can sit and wallow at home about these things or you get out and do something about it. And it just made me more committed to making sure it was a success. So, I mean, the other difficulty was recruiting customers, convincing people that, you know, you need our service, convincing people to trust you to hand their customer service to you. Big, big decision. And outsourcing, particularly if people have no experience of outsourcing, outsourcing is a major decision. The, the first piece of outsourcing that you do is the most difficult part. After that, you, 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 you can, it can be proven to you that it works. It's, um, it's certainly an, an easier decision. But handing over your customer service to somebody else is really, really difficult. So we overcame that by having an open office. You know, we, one of the first big customers we, we recruited, uh, SMEs was, or sorry, um, multinationals was Electrolux. We started to do service for Electrolux in Ireland, all of their service calls in the country. And it was really a game changer for us. Um, we recruited them. We worked very close. We spent six months talking to them about how they would do what we would do and how we would do it. We had we brought them down to our offices. We showed them our systems. We had a totally open book policy with them. And they liked what they saw. And they liked the fact that they could deal directly with the main people within the business. So I did not need them to ring up and make an appointment to see the three or four people that were working on their service desk. They would drop in casually because we'd nothing to hide. We were delivering exceptionally good service to them. So that was the real game changer for us. But that took a year and a half, two years to actually, you, you know, to get that to that level. Um, not drawing a salary, very foolishly, a word of warning to anybody who, uh, who's setting up a business. One of the temptations was not to, for me, and I, I consider myself a reasonably wise person, but I made a mistake with this. I did not draw a salary for the first two years out of the business because I was, we were financially secure. We could live on Valerie's salary and we could survive. But what I should have done was accrue the salary for myself because suddenly I have a two-year gap in my PAYE, my social welfare contributions, all the rest. I should have done I should have done it. So, you know, why not drawing the salary but accrue a salary, process a salary. Don't pay it to yourself if you don't have to, but accrue it. So that was a, that was a, a, a mistake I made. But then the business started to take off, and I think if you have a belief in, in the business, firstly, you have a belief in the service that you're delivering or the product that you're delivering, and you have that commitment to it, um, then, you know, it, it will succeed if you put in the work. I did a huge amount of networking. I traveled up and down the country, leaving the house at 6 o'clock in the morning, coming home at 8 o'clock in the evening, you know, an awful lot of networking in order to build up the business, and it paid off. It paid off. That's, that sounds like an extraordinary amount of work and, and energy as well. Somebody who's 50 years of age heading into that, what was that like? Wasn't a problem because I've been very, very lucky in the whole of my career that I've always worked, with probably one exception, I've always worked at jobs that I loved. So getting up in the morning was never an issue, never an issue. Motivating myself to get out and do things was never an issue. I, I enjoy working. I enjoy hard work. I enjoy, I love meeting people. So I, you know, 
I'm the type of person, you know, that, that can't sit in a restaurant and with, with, with a table beside me and talk to the people beside me. You know, I, I, I'm that kind of person. I, my wife goes mad with me at times, you know, so like, hell are you talking to these people or whatever, you know? Um, and uh, I'm just that type of person. So I love, I'm a real people person. I love talking to people. I love listening to people and learning from people. Um, so I never had a problem with energy levels as such, you know, it, it, it was always something that I, you know, um, that I, uh, was able to, to manage. Having said that, I do remember a, a very wise piece of words that I, I received many, many years ago. And I was working for a Dutch company and I'd just come back from, um, from a visit to, to Holland where we probably ate a little bit too many spicy foods and drank too many beers, but, um, we, I came back and I was like, God, I wasn't feeling 100%. And I went down to my GP and he gave me the once over and he said, yeah, you're fine. He said, but a stressful job. And I said, well, most of us do, you know, you know, there's stress in it. And he said, well, he said, I want to give you a piece of advice. I was about 33, 34 at the time. And he said, I want to give you a piece of advice. He said, I've attended a number of people on their deathbeds. He said, lots of people have often said to me, I should have traveled more. I should have uh, spent more time with my family. I should have played more golf. He said, never once has anybody ever said to me, I should have worked harder. And it, it's pretty true. You know, you've got to get that divide right. And I've always been able, since then, I've be, always been able to have a good life work balance. So despite the fact mm. that I've worked hard and worked long hours, I played hard as well. We did a lot of travel. I love my golf. Luckily enough, my wife plays golf as well. I spent a lot of time with family. Family were very, very important to me and key to a lot of the decisions I made over the years. Um, and, um, you know, I'm looking forward to new retirement now and being able to do that with my grandchildren. I already spent quite a lot of time with my grandchildren, but I'm looking forward to doing that. So you got to, you know, the one piece of advice I certainly think is well worth it is, you know, you, you make sure that your work-life balance is absolutely right. Hmm. And I tried to do that. Miss? What will I when miss? Oh, hmm. the, the day-to-day buzz, you know, the, the, um, my, my daughter and my son-in-law are involved in Kendallville Nace and do the most of the day-to-day running of the business. Um, I suppose, you know, I, I was saying to you earlier, we had a slight technical issue this morning that, that caused a problem that I had to try to win and solve. I love that type of thing. I love problem solving. I love getting involved. So from that point of view, that, that's the type of thing that I would miss. But I'm still in the background being able to give advice and you know, letting people take their head, but being able to give advice to them when they need that advice. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit difficult to actually step back from it because I still see it as my baby, you know. I started it from, you know, God, one, one full-time person and a part-time person. We now have 60 and 70 in staff, you know. So it's a little bit difficult to step back from it. But I'm learning how mm-hmm. to do that. And it, it is a learning mm-hmm. process. But again, I did plan this a year, year and a half ago. I've always been a, a, a person who plans things. So I knew a year and a half ago at 65, 66, I want to step back from the business, certainly a, a little bit. I want to ta- start taking it a little bit easier. Um, so I started yeah. the plan a year and a half ago and brought my son-in-law into the business. My daughter has twin children, so she works part-time within the business and, and uh, looks after finances and stuff like that. So the two of them are in the business and they will eventually take on the running of the, the full running of the business. But that plan started 18 months ago and I've gradually been working my way out of it. And do you think you'll step back fully from it and just, that's it, doors no. closed? <laughs> no, knowing me, I won't, definitely not. Yeah. They probably would love it. Yeah. Well, no, that's, a, that's an important question because a lot of people who have their own business, 
there there isn't that in the old days it was like 65 you're retired and there's still a lot of jobs where that's the case but when you when you own the business you don't have to do that and i've often wondered how i feel you know is there a cliff edge or is it a very slow ramp that that you're going to stay have some involvement even if it's only for the social contact yeah and to feel needed and wanted but at the same time it's like being a grandparent as i guess i'm not a grandparent yet uh, shout out to my son hurry up <laughs> um <laughs> i should say sons there's two of them uh but it must be like being a grandparent where yeah you can hand back the child you yeah. and and go off and do your own thing mm. whereas when you're a parent there is no hand back to the child it's it's a 24 hour job uh-huh. uh, it, it it must feel like that i guess yeah um i suppose one of the things i'm doing uh, paul you know i i try to keep abreast of all the technological changes and things that are happening within the system you know and and um i mean covid was a prime example for us you know we um when we got a little bit of prior knowledge of COVID because we deal with a lot of medical practitioners. So we were we were seeing people, uh, you know, we would book appointments for people and stuff like that. And we were seeing a lot of increases in this COVID thing. And I always remember in end of January in, what, the 2019, I think was COVID, but um, yeah. the, a, a GP ringing, ringing us and saying, I've got to cancel all my appointments for the next two weeks because I've got this damn COVID. And I had a conversation with him and he said to me, you've got to be prepared for this. This is going to come down. This is really going to be rampant. And we started to prepare a little bit earlier for it. And um, we were, uh, when when the full effects was started to hit, we were geared up and ready for everybody to work remotely, which was something that we hadn't done before. It meant new technology, bringing in new systems and bringing in new ideas. But we were able to do, we never lost one hour in the transition from, you know, from, uh, working office-based to home-based. So I've always kept abreast of the technology and that, that kind of thing is great. So at the moment, we're, we're launching a, a, a new live chat project, okay, where we're, as part of our service, we will offer live chat services, outsourced live chat services to customers. And we've been working on that for the last six months. So that takes up a bit of my time and that gives me something, a special project to work on in conjunction mm. and in, 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 as a team, as part of the team. So I keep that type of involvement. Um, I still get up every morning and I mean, old habits die hard. Um, for a small business, kind of one of the things that, again, having worked in a PLC, you need to know where your backside is all the time, okay? So there is not a day goes by where I don't check Kendall Bell Nace's bank account, find out where we are. Thank God it's very, very healthy. And I probably am, it's overkill a little bit because I don't need to check it every, every day. But it's just a habit that I have. I mm. produce management accounts every month. You know, unlike an awful lot of small firms out there, out there, we produce a set of management accounts every month. May not be 100% accurate, but they're as close to accurate as we need to know where exactly we are going from month to month. So, and, and that's from, you know, the, the, the um, rigors and, and the, 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 the requirements of working in a PLC, where you were, by the 14th of every month, you reported all your information while we tied somebody that didn't have all that information on the 14th of the month, you know. So that kind of discipline was is there. So I still do that. So I still have an interest in the day-to-day running of the business. And I suppose the other thing is, um, you know, I'm there kind of like a mentor to my 
to the people that are in the business, you know, talking to them about what they can do and making them a, a, a bit different, I suppose, in that you're, you're not telling them what to do, but you're kind of making them, you want them to make the decisions. So you might give a couple of ideas or, uh, you know, throw your tuppence's worth in and let them then make the decision. And they may not decide to go with exactly the way you go. I'm not always going to have it right. So that's a big part of what I do. Yeah. I'm curious, Tony, about the, the shift in the way potential customers, prospects engage with your clients. And uh -huh. that 20, 30 years ago, most people might have picked up the phone and called, uh, then email, and you said chat has come along in the meantime. Uh -huh. uh, have you noticed a a significant shift in terms of how uh, prospective customers engage with vendors? And if so, where's the where's the dominant channel where they make first contact with a <laughs> a, a potential uh, vendor? I suppose it depends on the type of industry. Okay. We do a lot of work in the medical end of it. So, for instance, booking appointments for we have uh, one very large private hospital that we would book all their appointments with their consultants and uh, with their um, their physiotherapy team, um, and that tends to be by phone call. That just tends. I don't know why. Maybe the comfort of having a, a a human voice at the end of the the, the phone makes it that little bit easier because it might be worrying time for them or whatever. In other areas, we've seen, I was saying, mentioned earlier about Electrolux, we saw a significant shift away from phone calls to emails. And part of the reason I reckon for that was because people were uh, booking service calls in the evening time or Saturdays or Sundays when there wouldn't have been a live phone service. You know, we could have provided it, but they didn't want us to provide it. So there was a significant shift over to email. But we're now seeing quite a shift over to live chat. Now, it's in the very early stages of the development of what we're doing with it, but we are seeing a significant shift. And from the market research that we've done, it's interesting to see how people use live chat, okay? Um, I suppose the, the, the one huge benefit to them is they go onto a live chat, provided it works properly, okay? They, they go onto a live chat, and they've almost instant engagement, okay? Whereas they, if they ring the company and they're told 25 or 30 times how important the phone call is to them, but they're, they're answering the phone call, um, you know, that can, that can really annoy people. So mm. I found even myself, Paul, that, you know, I use live chat wherever it's available. If I have a live chat option, I will use it because I'm able to do something else while I'm in the middle yeah. of the live chat. You know, yeah. I, I had to phone SSE, uh, Airtricity or whoever yesterday, and um, I was about 10 minutes on hold. Just fine, no problem. But I've got the mobile phone listening there, you know, waiting for somebody to pick up the phone. And you hear it click on the phone, you think they're, they're picking it up, but it's not. It's just the, the play, the recording playing again. I eventually went on to live chat. Unfortunately, the live chat wasn't working. But, uh, you know, I would have gone on to live chat. With that option, I would pick live chat. So we are seeing a, a move. And... You know, one of the things we're examining at the moment is this social media monitoring, okay? So monitoring people's Facebook pages, monitoring their Twitter accounts, managing, uh, monitoring their, their, uh, all of their social media, mm. mainly for customer comments. And that's an interesting one. It's amazing the number of people who have an issue but will not pick up the phone and ring about the issue yeah. or will not drop an email but 
boy, will they put a comment up on Facebook or will they put a, a comment up on on um, on Twitter or whatever? And that's mm. you know that's an area that's really developing, and you know an area the companies really need to take take you know a good look at. You know. Mm. Yeah, no, I I was curious about it as well because I would be like you with the chat. I would prefer to to go on chat when when given the option. What I'm also curious about is from your end, how much knowledge expertise do you have to have in your client's business in order to be able to provide a service that isn't just a uh, look, isn't just responding but without any added value? Okay. It varies again from customer to customer. We would have customers who just want us to deal with the phone, the initial phone call. So they ring for, uh, you know, for Joe Blogs. We answer the phone as their virtual receptionist and we will transfer the call over to an expert. But that expert could be sitting down in Spain or could be sitting over in, the, in, in Northern Ireland or wherever. So mm. that's the first part of the service. We have a number of customers who require us to deliver um triage type services for them so with that we must do training with them so you know again using the electrolux example we would have had regular training with uh with um their staff on technical issues um we we did a little bit of triage it's amazing some of the some of the simpler things that can happen that cause problems for people and you're able to say solve them over the phone so there was regular training and our we would have had dedicated staff to look after them but with a lot of our clients what we have is that you know it's a kind of a a Ryanair mix so we have 10 calls for 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 Paul we've got 10 calls for Tony we've got 10 calls for somebody else and we've got the same people answering those those calls so their knowledge would not have to be as 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 deep but a lot of what we do is as I said taking out the obstacles out of their business so what we try to do with our customers is we talk to them about our telephone answering service, our basic telephone answering service, or our basic call, call um, helps at desk service. And it's it's a learning process. We learn from the type of phone, call, phone calls we get, the, the type of issues that cause obstacles for them in their, in, in their system. So mm. for instance, you know, if I give you an example, we would work with an awful lot of um, physiotherapists who have maybe one physiotherapist or two physiotherapists in their practice, don't have a full-time receptionist. And that's great. We have access to their online diaries. We know what the treatments cost. We know the length of the treatments. We have all that information to us. But then suddenly somebody comes in sick. You know, a physiotherapist calls in sick. And they've nobody to make their cancellations and reschedule. So once we identify that, we identify that when we, we start dealing with some of our initial uh, physiotherapy clients. So mm. we then said, well, look, you know, why don't we make a real calls for you when you need to the outbound calls made. It can be, it's not, it's not that we do every day, but on a Monday yep. morning when Joe Bloggs doesn't turn in and is out sick, we cancel all your appointments and reschedule. Mm. And we set it up in such a way, again, I was saying to you, you know, you've got to be, you've got to think outside the box a little bit and be a little bit innovative. So we set it up in such a way that I was saying about our technology systems. Our technology systems are fantastic. We can make outbound calls on behalf of the client, which if it, if we don't get an answer to, the, the caller ID is the phone number for our client. So that when they ring back mm. on the mix, missed call, the, the call is answered, Paul Lanigan Physiotherapy or Tony Clark Physiotherapy or whatever it might be. So we worked on that. And that's a, that was something that we did that was a little bit different from some of our competitors. You know? So You're that a problem solver is what I'm know? hearing. 
But it, yeah, there's I'm, a big learning process. We try to learn as much as possible about all of our customers. We had a yeah. very interesting one where a, a client of ours moved premises. And uh, of course, people ring in and say, well, where's the new premises, you know? We're sitting, obviously, in Nace, and this client was down in New Ross, and we're saying, well, it's beside this and beside that. And one of the girls suggested, could he make it? One of the, the girls that works for me said, could he make a video of how you get to the, the, the place? So now this is a standard with our, a thing that we ask most of our clients. Would you like to make a video for directions of the client? You know, Because instead of us taking the phone call and that caller come ringing in and saying, you know, where exactly are you? And we transfer in the call to you so that you can explain to them where you are. We're yeah. now able to tell them that this is where you go or how you do it. And we can have a video up in front of us saying, oh, yeah, you go drive by McGuire's pub or whatever it is, you know. And yeah. it, it, that, that causes one slight problem for us in that Mary in, in my office could be answering that phone call for the person. And when the person arrives in the physiotherapist's, Mary isn't sitting there. They say, where's Mary, you know? And then <laughs> so it's, a, it's a very slight problem to deal with, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think probably perhaps nowadays where working remotely is very uh, as accepted practice, yeah. it's probably easier to explain that away than it would have been four or five years ago. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. So you were saying that, that, that COVID didn't impact your business in the same way as it would have impacted others, other than you had to physically reconfigure your, your operations. From an operations point of view, it didn't impact. From a turnover yeah. point of view, it did. And I mean, okay. in our first three or four months, but I, I, again, with most of our business being in the, the or not most of it, a percentage of our business being involved in the uh, health service, um, one of our biggest clients, the private hospital, was taken over for three months by the and uh, the uh, by the HSE. So mm. that business died a death. Um, mm. A number of our clients, their business is closed. We were people in the food industry who we dealt with in the food supply industry. And unfortunately, they lost their businesses due to COVID. You know, it's yeah. uh, it was devastating for them. That impacted on us, but we were able to survive. And, you know, I hear a lot of criticisms at times of how the government handled. And I'm not, believe you me, I'm, I'm apolitical. I, you know, I I'm, don't have a particular party that I, I favor or anything like that. But I think given the circumstances, they reacted very well. And the business support, support scheme, for with all its faults, was exceptionally good. And it helped us survive in the first three or four months. Thank God we didn't have to uh, avail of it for very, very long. But that uh, the, the the support schemes that were put in place certainly helped us in the first three or four months and protected the business and allowed us to keep 15 people in employment. You know, so I think, you know, hindsight is a great science and you can look back and say, we should have done this or should have done that. But it was something that they had to react to very, very quickly. And I certainly, as a business person, was very grateful that they did, you know. Yeah. Just, I'm conscious of time, Tony. We're almost yep. up. Uh, curious to know where you see the future of that service business, where you're you're the interface between SMEs, typically, although some large larger organisations, and and their customers. That it has shifted. You're talking about chat, but I'm cur just curious to know from a technological perspective, if maybe five, ten years down the line, how do you think it might be different? I think it, certainly we're going to see a shift more to the the uh, to the the um, to the social media end of it. You know, I can see our business moving. I mean, if I look at the percentages over, you know, if I did analysis over the last fifteen years that we've been in existence and look at the number of phone calls that we handled for each client and versus emails and you know now live chat and other areas of communication, 
that certainly is going to change. That you know, the, the more and more people, younger people in particular, you know, you read about things. Young people don't send text messages. I still send text messages on occasion. Young people don't use text messages. They're using WhatsApp or whatever it might be. Um, so you know, the 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 there's going to be a trend of changing towards that, um, and more of the the uh, on the the social media technology end of it, and how people contact. I think the mobile phone, there will always be an element of people who prefer to deal with people by phone. They prefer to have a human voice at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the line. And again, it depends on the type of, of uh, business that you're in. But there's, you know, there's nothing more comforting. You know, when, you, when you've got issues, maybe when you're ordering something, you can order online or you could do things online. But when you then have an issue in the, with, with a, a product or an issue with service or an issue with, you know, getting something working or you need some technological help, it is nice to have a human at the end of the phone helping us. I mean, very interesting. I know briefly we had a conversation about um, AI and, you know, what's going to happen with AI? I mean, it's in its infancy at the moment. Is that the next thing that's going to be involved? You know, will you be able to put, type in, how do I solve the problem with my washing machine and, and get full instructions? Maybe not because obviously there's health and safety things and concerns like that. But I, I think there will always be an element of, of business where people want the human touch. And, you know, it's interesting when you look at the involvement of product life cycles and, and the way things happen in, uh, with, with products. I mean, things do come full circle, you know. Yeah. And it, it, it'll be interesting to see if it goes back to, I mean, you know, I, I recently had to change bank. Um, I was one of the Ulster Bank customers who had to change bank for the business. And I made the decision, I don't, Hopefully, I don't make too many mistakes in life, but I made the decision to go with my existing bank, my personal bank, for my business banking. And it was a wrong decision. Hmm. And wrong decision for a number of reasons. But the main reason being, their customer service was disgraceful. Absolutely disgraceful. I, you could not, their, their help desk, we were, we were transitioning after 15 years of, it wasn't just standard banking, we, we had SEPA direct debit, it's a pieces that we have to deal with and stuff like that. And it was just unreal. So much so that after two months and a lot of time invested in it, we decided that's it. We're throwing a hat at it. We've made a mistake. We're going over to their, their opposition. I won't name them. We went over to their opposition. Yeah, yeah. And why and, is it, why was it a mistake to have the, what, I'm, I'm struggling to understand why having your business bank and your domestic bank being the same, why that's a particular issue. Very hard to understand. I'm 40 years with my existing, 45 years with my existing bank on personal banking. Never really had any issues. Yeah, yeah, blip, but very, very few issues. But for instance, you know, one of the things we do, like most companies, we have a, a company debit card where we might do purchases online. So we get a company debit card and um, to get a company, our company debit card, we fill in a 52-page form and give them all the information about what we had, which is fine. Same requirement for every bank. We send it in. I go to purchase online the first time I have to, to purchase something online, pay 200 euro bill, and it won't allow me to purchase online. And I ring their their um, their helpline, and I say, oh, yeah, Mr. Clark, you have to register for a different type of uh, permission to use it to purchase online. And I have to fill in another form to get this done. I mean, it was just, their software was just atrocious, absolutely atrocious. It seems to be a, 
a higgly piddly mashed together piece of software. Gotcha. And it's it just a, a lesson in how not to look after customers. They're okay, but you're talking about a you're talking about a specific bank screwing up rather than in general. Yes, business owners yeah. shouldn't use the same bank. I mean, as we've they picked do for the their new domestic. bank. We've gone through their opposition, and we haven't had any of those issues. Gotcha. Gotcha. Heading. Okay. And that, now I understand it was a particular bank rather than banking. Oh yeah, in absolutely. Well, I mean, gotcha. no number of banks don't believe. No, believe for you sure. Day, but <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah. The, the, these guys, these other guys, do it a little yeah. bit better, you know. Yeah. Just we need to wrap it up shortly, but the, the, you were talking about AI and chat and answering phones. I had some experiences recently where I came to the conclusion was I would, in some respects, prefer AI that was efficient to humans. And I and I understand the difference. You're right. If I have a problem I want solved and I'm wound up about something, I want to speak to a human, not 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 a not a chat bot, but so many of the well several instances recently where i'm talking to a human and i'm talking the likes of ebay or paypal customer service and it's so frustrating because it's a different person you're speaking to each time and all you get is platitudes it's 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 an it's analogous to wait on hold your business is important to us as you wait for 20 minutes it's like, you know, we understand your frustration, blah, blah, blah. And they tell you 10 things you already know. And you just, you're, you're hitting a brick wall because nobody cares about solving the problem. They only care about responding, mm -hmm. which is a different thing. And I had it the other day with, what was that? It was some telephone. Oh, I know what it was. <laughs> I, I thought we could turn this into some sort of a customer into some sort of an assertiveness training program. I needed to cancel a Sky subscription. The number of hurdles I had to go through where they're basically saying, now you really don't want it. Now how about this, this, this and this? And I said, no, really? I want to, yeah, well, it's there now. You and it was just constant hurdle after hurdle you had to go through just to cancel the service. And each time there was just another script. And I thought, you know what, give me AI. Who can yeah. just follow a simple instruction, cancel this account. That's it. I think one of the big problems with uh, and, and the call center industry, you know, um, we we classify ourselves as contact center, kind of not just call center, but the call center industry has a bad rep because of the, the type of scripts that people have. You know, mm. they don't encourage their employees to use their brain. You know, no, you, you've got whatsoever. a script in front of you. You must stick to the script. And one of the issues, and I, I suppose one of the major differences between us as a small call center and a large call center is we don't, um, we don't, we obviously have KPIs that we measure, calls answered, other bits and pieces. But we don't have this, you know, you've got two and a half minutes to wrap up the call. You know, you've got two, three minutes to wrap up the call. We don't, we don't do that. An awful lot of the callers we get on occasions will be people who haven't spoken to somebody in a week and they want to tell you about their pets or their dog or whatever. Now, why we're trying not to encourage that. Part of our customer service is to be able to to do that and deal with that, you know. And I suppose the large call centers find that very, very difficult because they've 800 seats, you know. So they've 800 yeah. seats, they've got to have scripts, they've got to have measures, and they've got to deliver what their clients define as customer service. Yeah, but you know what, there's scripts in the script. Like, I understand there are certain legal requirements that you have to go through. Mm -hmm. uh, scripted. I get that with your bank and insurance. Uh, they're, they're no, no, absolutely. 
When I was trying to cancel this, the guy was telling me, and this was, there was several occasions in the cancellation process, where he says, well, if you have any apps, they will be available. And I said, it's okay. I said, I don't have any apps. But he continued to read the script. Mm. And like yep. there was none, and that was just frustrating because now I'm going, you're not listening to me. I'm actually trying to help you here by saying, I don't need that. I don't need that. That's fine. All I need to do is this over there. And it was continuing. And so there no, was no legal obligation, to my knowledge, um, that they had to do this or if there was they could have said that and it was just frustrating that's my old point and I, sometimes no, you think I, I understand the point but I think yeah. part of that uh, I don't think that's the fault of the, the person on the end of the no, phone I think it that's isn't. the fault of the managers correct you know the people who are designing the system yes you know and sometimes yeah. people over engineer things yes totally maybe, yeah you maybe know, if they know, had to sit in the seat yeah, and I mean, it, it can be very, very difficult, and rightly so. I, I find it very frustrating at times. And you know yourself when you're speaking to these people that they're reading from a script in front of them. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, um, absolutely. And that's one of the things we avoid. We do ask our clients for scripts as such, but yeah. we will say to them, we are not going to read, you know, oh, dear customer, blah, 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 blah. We will customize that script, and each person will use their own type of, we'll Common deliver sense. the main message, yeah. but we customize it, you know, yeah. and that's that's what makes us, it's probably a little bit different. It's easier yeah. to do when you've 16, 17 staff than when you've 800 for staff, sure. you know. For sure. Two final questions for you, Tony. Uh, your house is burning down, your family are safe, if any pets are safe, your phone, of course, is safe, and your computer. Uh, you have time to run back into your house and rescue one item. What would it be and why? My golf clubs. <laughs> <laughs> That was easy. I was emphatic. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Lord. Fair enough. Okay. And then the final question is, when your time on this planet is done and there's a book written about your life, what would you like the title of it to be? What would I like the title of it to be? Well, I suppose I would like it to deal with me being a good husband, a good father, and a good grandfather because that's where the most of the pleasure in my life has been delivered. You know, and at different phases in my life, obviously, you know, your, your, your marriage firstly, then your, your, your children, and now my grandchildren. And I get exceptionally good pleasure. I, I said earlier about, you know, I've always had this desire for learning. I find I'm learning stuff from my six-year-old grandchildren at this stage, you know, which is mm. fantastic. You know, mm. absolutely fantastic. And I, I love spending time with my family and traveling. You know, we do as much traveling as we, we as we can. And that's the plan now, even to do more so of that. But we've always done that. But I, you know, my business achievements have been relatively minor. I've had a very, very good life from them. You know, don't get me wrong. But they're not the things that are important in life. The things that are important in life are family, you know, yeah. and that's that's the most important part for me. Paul. That's it. Tony Clark, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Cheers. <laughs>